Genre. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Protagonist Podcast, where each week we look at a great character in a great story. I'm Joe Dorowski, and this week we're discussing Walter White from the television series Breaking Bad. And joining me for the discussion is returning guest George Sakaridis. Welcome back, George. It's great to be here. Um, George, you specifically requested that we talk about Walter White and Breaking Bad because of a project you have coming up. Do you want to go ahead and plug that project real quick? Sure. Um, I am co-editing a volume in the Theology and Pop Culture series on Theology and Breaking Bad. And so it's actually going to cover the whole Breaking Bad universe. So it's Breaking Bad, Better Call Saul, and El Camino. And uh, currently we're taking proposals. I think by the time this airs, we will have closed. But if you're a really big name and you want to put put your name in there, contact me. Uh, but yeah, it's uh, going to be a fun project, and uh, David and I have been friends for a number of years, and uh, it'll be great to work together. You know, I just uh, realized, I forgot to tell you, I think we are going to slide this one up a little bit in our release order, so it should be out in time for any academics who hear this and want to contribute to be able to get a proposal into. Oh, well, that's good news. Yes. <laughs> so definitely, uh, so check out... Uh, popularcultureandtheology.com, I think, is where the call will be posted. Now, for any listeners who aren't familiar, Breaking Bad was created by Vince Gilligan, and it starred Brian Cranston as Walter White, a high school chemistry teacher who becomes a drug kingpin. And we are discussing the pilot, which was written and directed by Vince Gilligan, and that originally aired January 20th, 2008. And we're also going to discuss episode number six, Crazy Handful of Nothing, which was written by Bronwyn Hughes and directed by George Mostras. Now, um, George, do you remember when you first became aware of Breaking Bad or first started watching the series at all? Yeah, actually, funny enough, that does connect to the project we're doing. Uh, so, I mean, I knew it was really, you know, out there and, and getting popular. And I didn't start watching probably till like 2011 or 12, maybe, and uh, and caught up on Netflix. But my friend David Gooden, who is co-editing the volume with me, actually is one of the people who pushed me to watch it. And I was not disappointed at all. It's a great show. I'm somewhat similar to you where I heard all the buzz about it, um, all the rave reviews. I had lots of people uh, that I personally knew, knew whose opinions I, you know, I I felt like our tastes aligned. uh, Tell me that was really good. And then I also, of course, saw all the awards that it was winning, but very similar to you. I didn't actually watch anything until I think, it was probably in the lead up to that last season and it was all, I watched everything on Netflix. Um, I can't remember if it was after the last season had just been dropped on Netflix or um, what exactly the order was, but I wasn't watching it as a, as it was being released, but as a consumer of podcasts and a follower of pop culture, I was, you know, aware of its reputation and like you, it's, it's, it's a, pretty good ride (laughs) you know. so I I, I, I wasn't disappointed with it. And it, I, I think viewing it week to week, uh, at times would have been unbearable. But in, in other ways, I kind of miss that because now everything is so on demand. Like I almost miss never having to wait and think about what could possibly happen next. Um, you know, being able to binge everything with so many of the episodes that do end on cliffhangers and seasons that end on cliffhangers that would have given you weeks and months in between the this, this story, you know, leaving you there. Been a lot of rich discussion that would have taken place. But then there's also like, it's it's nice to just say play next episode and see exactly what happens next. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know if we talked about this last time I was on, but the, the last show that I watched that was like, you know, had those cliffhangers and it was, you know, the space between was lost. And and just the buildup and the, the discussion and everything was great. And I think Breaking mm-hmm. Bad would have been good that way. I think I got a little bit of it um, because I did catch it, I think, maybe in the third, fourth season. But I actually don't have cable, so I watched on Netflix. So I actually would wait till it came out. Right. And then the last season, so to show I'm a true fan, though, the last season I did buy on Amazon and just didn't talk to anybody till I could get to it the next morning. <laughs> oh, were they available that that quickly? Yeah. So I did that with uh, the last season of Mad Men and the last season of Breaking Bad. And yeah, it would like drop, I think, at like 2 a.m. right after it aired and <laughs> you could watch it the next morning. Okay. It's it's amazing how different uh like viewing experiences are even like like we, we, we all kind of like acknowledge how different it is from like the eighties and nineties to the present, but even within the last, you know, ten years, like what what is available uh when is is just changing so rapidly. Yeah, I agree totally. And honestly, it's hard to believe Breaking Bad first aired like twelve years ago. It's it's been that long. And it's been off the air, I think for seven years now. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I'm at the, uh, the stage of life where anything that I encountered after college, I imagine came out five to 10 years ago, just, just a blanket <laughs> five to 10 years ago. And it's always a little disappointing when you find out. No, no, it didn't. <laughs> yeah. Can I say just ditto? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> There's like this very clear timeline in your life until a certain schooling ends. And then it's just like, yeah, that was a few years ago. Right. No, it was 2005. Yeah, no, no, that one can vote. <laughs> um. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, a little bit of trivia about Breaking Bad. As we've kind of noted, it aired for five seasons, but it only had 62 episodes. So they were um, smaller, tighter seasons. And those aired between 2008 and 2013. And it's hard to quantify the level of critical acclaim that the series received during its run. Um, I think it was on every single like best of the year list every year that it aired. It was nominated for 58 Emmy Awards and won 16, and that includes two wins for Outstanding Drama, four wins for Brian Cranston as Outstanding Lead Actor, and three wins for Aaron Paul as Outstanding Supporting Actor. Now, um, George, was it was this airing the same time as Mad Men on AMC? Yeah, yeah it on was. AMC, this was on FX, right? Uh, this was AMC and, well, they were both on AMC, weren't they? Oh, I thought this was FX, but maybe it's AMC. Uh, I'm pretty sure it's AMC. Okay. Um, but yeah, I don't know if you're going to give the trivia related, but I actually was going to say that myself. Uh, supposedly the last season of Mad Men was split into two seasons so that John Hamm would have a chance to win best actor because Brian Cranston was dominating it. Yes, well, that's exactly what I was going to talk about, is that there was this other critically acclaimed series at the same time. And I remember listening to uh, one of the regular podcasts I was listening to at the time was was Bill Simmons' um, pop culture and sports podcast. And he was watching Mad Men, and he was just every year was angry that John Hamm wasn't winning the award, and he hadn't watched Breaking <laughs> Bad yet. And then like before the final season of Breaking Bad, he finally broke down and watched it. And then like the next episode of his podcast, he was like, I get it, guys. I understand. I still think John Hamm's great, but now I understand why Brian Cranston kept winning. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's these are these are two of my favorite shows, and actually, 
Funny enough, I just started a rewatch of Mad Men, I think last week. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I love both of these shows for different reasons. But yeah, great performances in their own right. But it's amazing what Brian Cranston did with this, especially given his kind of uh, acting history. And so he kind of, you know, had to sell this this role or mm-hmm. to get this role. He had to sell himself. And now his I mean, his career exploded even more after that, obviously. Yeah, he was um, most famous as the the dad from Malcolm in the Middle, but then uh, be just below that maybe is as a semi recurrent. I, I mean, like a, an occasional guest star on Seinfeld. Um, you know, he he came yes. back a few Dr. times. Doctor Watley. Yeah, and and so known almost exclusively for comedic roles, and then this is just a phenomenal dramatic turn, uh, and and a, a character that was built from the beginning to be, uh, you know, pure pure drama. And uh, Cranston just is, is astounding in, the, in it. Uh, his performance is definitely, uh, you know, he deserves all the praise that he received. And I think the ability to play comedy as he does really comes through here. And I think in a lot of dramatic roles, having that ability to show that comedic side in serious situations really kind of rounds out the character. So, I, I mean, I think that's on full display because he can jump in and out of various moods and um, kind of demeanors. Um, a little bit more trivia. Um, one of my favorite books about American television is called TV, the book by Alan Steppenwall and Matt Zoller seats. And it ranks breaking bad as the fifth greatest television series of all time. Uh, the top five are the Simpsons, the Sopranos, the wire cheers and breaking bad. So that's pretty solid company, uh, right there. uh, Yeah. It's, and I think the top four were tied for one. He said something (laughs) like that. I'm not sure it was something like that. So breaking bad right outside of that. And and mm-hmm. I'll just I'll, I'll name drop, but we were able to get him on our Cheers podcast. Oh, um, excellent! As a guest one time for a short interview, my uh, partner did, which was great. Uh, but yeah, I mean, obviously, Breaking Bad, high praise there. Mm-hmm. And the series, as you kind of already noted, has become something of a franchise. There is a prequel television television series called Better Call Saul, which is the prequel of a side character that we don't meet for a little while in the Breaking Bad universe. Is that right? I, I can't, I've only watched the series once and I, I had actually had never rewatched any episodes until preparing for this podcast. Um, yeah, it's, it's either later in season two or maybe even see, I think it's later in season two. It might be season three. Um, I've been binging the last, you know, uh, 30 hours or so to prep for tonight. So uh, I can say he has not appeared as of like episode three or four of season two. Okay. So yeah, um, better uh, in, in the series, there's this uh, corrupt lawyer named Saul. Is it Saul Goodman? Uh, yeah, and it's all good, man. <laughs> yes. And he, uh, like, for whatever reason, the character popped enough that he has a prequel series that has now aired for five seasons and has a sixth and final season that was scheduled there in 2021. I never know with anything that was announced for 2021 if it's still on <laughs> schedule or not. Um, if, if I can jump in, I, I have to say, like, when they announced there was going to be this prequel, I, I was I was like, how how is this going to work? Because this is a comedic character that doesn't look like he could carry his own show. And they did an amazing job with it. Um, I, I'm so impressed. Yeah, I've uh, so I've only watched Breaking Bad that one time through. Uh, and I haven't watched Better Call Saul. Or there was a sequel film called El Camino, which was released on Netflix in 2019. Um, it's just a victim of, you know, there's there's too much stuff out there yeah. <laughs> to be able to see it all. Uh, but I, I've heard very good things about both Better Call Saul and El Camino. 
Yeah, I mean, Better Call Saul, I'm, I think, through season three, maybe, in my viewing, and I, I've really enjoyed it. It's uh, it's a little bit different flavor than Breaking Bad, but it's got a lot of the old, uh, you know, old standbys from Breaking Bad. Um, a few of the characters will appear, and then we get, like, uh, like Tuco Salamanca, who we'll discuss possibly today. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, appears in Better Call Saul. And it, it's funny, though, because like this is a prequel, but everybody's 10 years older. Um, and you kind of have to suspend. Uh, and they just hand wave that away, not even acknowledge <laughs> it. Just like we're here. El Camino. I mean, I we don't have to talk about it too much, but I, it was really good. But it really, I think, was kind of a uh, kind of a bone to Breaking Bad fans. I mean, it was really made for the fans, I think. Uh, and because that one was released on Netflix, I almost felt like because uh, Netflix, I think, is is at least partially responsible for the popularity of Breaking Bad. Like, despite all the critical acclaim, it was struggling ratings wise, yeah. I think, until it became available for binging on Netflix. And then a lot of people discovered it and the ratings for the next season after it became available on Netflix really shot through the roof. So I, I think it was Vince Gilligan also doing something for Netflix because uh, that service had been so instrumental in the continuation of his vision on Breaking Bad. What I, I don't know, would it be fair to say that this was the first show that really benefited to that degree? Uh, as far from... as I know, uh, like it, it definitely is going to be in the discussion. I don't know if it's the very first, but I think it's one that would be named up, particularly for being in that situation. Uh, again, things change so rapidly, but where it was a network series that was going to be broadcast, but then the, the earlier seasons appearing on a streaming service really gave then the future network episodes a bump. Uh, which now everything gets often so siloed where, um, you know, it, it is just for Netflix, you know, and, and there's fewer and fewer of those that are crossover, at least while they're still airing on, on networks that they're going to be putting the earlier seasons on because uh, now the networks all have their own streaming services. Like it's 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 going to be crazy to see how this all shakes out. But I think it is something you can definitely point to for like this moment in, you know, the early 2010s um, allowed this incredible growth in the popularity of a series uh, through, through streaming while it was still being produced. Yeah, I I think so. I mean, it's, it was interesting because like I said, I don't have cable. I didn't have cable. So I would wait for these shows to, you know, drop the next season and it would be, you know, a few months at least after it ended. Um, And so this was kind of my lifeline to this show. And like, you know, if this had, if this show had aired in the nineties, I might not never have seen it until I bought it on DVD years later. So it really did change the dynamic, you know, for, for people who are moving into streaming as their primary source of viewing. Yeah. And it's just one of those interesting things where the means of distribution really does affect um, what is being produced and how it's being consumed in a way that I, I think a lot of us don't take the time to think about. Um, and, and in the case of breaking bad, like if, if it hadn't had that ratings bump, it's possible we wouldn't have gotten the, the uh is it five seasons that it ran am i uh uh six yeah five seasons I or, or i think they broke the fifth season maybe in into two like there's uh, just a long yes break. i think so correct some, there. Yes. sometimes it gets listed as five sometimes it's six depending on where you're looking because there was such a long break um halfway through it um but you know it's entirely possible like it, it could have gotten canceled before vince gilligan could wrap up the story and it has like a a, a full like bookend wrap up uh in that in, the, in that final season where, you know, this is the end of the story and it feels fully produced um, and not like rushed to meet a deadline that was given because ratings were low or anything like that. Um, yeah. 
And and I think that's so essential. I mean, there's been some shows where they'll give them like that little last few episodes to wrap up. And although I think that's really good for, for the fan base, it isn't that full arc where you can see the whole thing close. And this definitely has that. Um, for like the, the chess pieces are being positioned uh, seasons before um, to, yeah. to, to close everything out. And, and it's, um, you know, it's, it's another interesting case where like you mentioned that your last like real episodic viewing was lost. That was an instance where the reverse, like it's incre- incredible popularity actually forced the creators to stretch it out for, further. And there's some places where you see the seams straining um, a little bit narratively uh, because the network doesn't want them to wrap up in only four seasons <laughs> um, yeah, uh, because it's making so much money for them. Uh, and so it, it can definitely go both ways um, as to uh, you know, a lack of popularity ending something early or, you know, too much popularity, maybe, maybe stretching it out. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's, I mean, I think in general shows kind of after seasons five and six, it's starting to stretch and, you know, um, and it's interesting, like I was talking with my wife uh, recently about this because I mentioned Breaking Bad had, I didn't know how many episodes it was, but it, you know, I thought it was around you know 60 something or high 50s. And like Breaking Bad, Mad Men, The Americans, um, some of my favorite shows really only have like 60 to 80 shows. Um, and, you know, in the past, you'd need 100 for syndication. Yeah, like that was the goal was always to reach 100 episodes. That's when you were actually a su- su- successful show, or at least you can guarantee future financial uh, uh, income for an, uh, the production company. Yeah, I mean, and to put this in perspective, actually, we bought Gilligan's Island so my kids could watch it. And that only ran three seasons, but I think there's like 90 something episodes. <laughs> There's this obscene number of episodes. They actually, I think, are more than Mad Men, which ran seven and eight, if you count that split. Um, And it ran 92 episodes. And it's just, I don't know if we're getting better storytelling and just kind of concentrating it versus stretching it out and getting a little bit more filler. But but it's an interesting question. Uh, Yeah, and I think just being aware of some of those ins and outs and in, in intricacies, it, it can both be um, one of those things that can maybe remove some of your enjoyment of a series. Like when you know, like some behind the scenes wrangling, uh, like you might be on guard uh, for, for a particular season. Cause you know, like, Oh, the show was, was removed for this season or something. And, and it kind of can remove in some sense, like the purity of the product and, you know, what the art that had been produced, but it also, I think can lend to some really interesting insights about uh, the relation between business and art. Yeah, definitely. And so many things are affected by the business end. And I think that's still true, but I think it's less true than it was, you know, in, in the network days where you, you know, you had to make hay and then, or you were pulled. Um, Yeah. It's crazy when you look at, um, ratings and and like what used to be a hit show versus what's a hit show now and things that would get canceled would be like the number one show on television today and things that were canceled in the 90s for for low ratings yeah i mean uh so my partner on our cheers podcast randy uh woodbury he'll you know he'll mention the ratings for cheers each week uh and these numbers are obscenely high compared to what things are now it's, it's just, uh, probably there's so many viewing options compare. right it's it's fractured um, yeah. beyond belief but like famously nbc would have the the time slot in between um uh friends and uh was was, was it seinfeld and friends originally and they, like it would shift which ones were there but there were like two really big hit shows and they'd have was, the time yeah. slot in between uh and the thing in yeah, between would sometimes be getting, seven like, and was... was was eight so the 7 30 time slot yeah. um would sometimes be getting like 25 million views 
and it would be canceled because it was losing percent of yes. sandwiched in between and they want something that was maintained what it was sandwiched in between and that kind of viewership would just make any network exec ex- ecstatic <laughs> today before we move on listeners we want to thank each and every one of you for listening and especially thank those of you who support us on patreon if you'd like to support us financially we invite you to go to patreon.com slash protagonist and support our show with at least a dollar per month all supporters on Patreon at any level receive access to our special quick casts, which are shorter episodes in which we discuss the media we've been consuming in the last month. And all patrons who support us with $5 per month or more get to choose a topic for us to discuss. On to the summary. The pilot episode, called Pilot. A man in underwear and a gas mask is driving an RV crazily down a road. He crashes in a ditch, then grabs a camera and records a message identifying himself as Walter White and saying goodbye to his wife and son. We jump back three weeks and we see Walter White on his 50th birthday. His wife, Skylar, is pregnant. Walter takes his son, Walt Jr., to school, where Walter is the chemistry teacher. After school, Walter has a second job working at a car wash. It's not great. At a surprise birthday party that night, Walter's brother-in-law, Hank, who is a DEA agent, talks about getting $700,000 in cash off of a meth dealer in a recent drug bust. Walter is impressed, and Hank offers to take him along uh, to ride along on a drug bust sometime. The next day, Walter collapses while at the car wash. His doctor tells him that he has lung cancer and at most a couple years to live. Walt then rides along with Hank on a drug bust. Walter waits far away in a car while Hank and his partner go to raid a meth lab. Walter sees a former student, Jesse Pinkman, running away and realizes that Jesse was the drug dealer that Hank was after. That night, Walter goes to Jesse's home and blackmails Jesse into becoming partners in making and dealing meth. Walter will use his chemistry knowledge to make drugs, while Jesse will deal the drugs. Walter steals some chemistry equipment from school, while Jesse buys a used RV to use as a mobile meth lab. They drive into the desert, and Walter strips down to his underwear so as not to contaminate his clothes, and makes his first batch of meth. Jesse is impressed with the quality of this product. He takes it to a dealer he knows, but the dealer wants to actually meet the cook. Jesse and two dealers return to the RV where Walt is forced to cook for them at gunpoint. The dealers threaten Jesse and Walter. One flicks a cigarette out the window, which starts a brush fire. Walter mixes chemicals that create a deadly gas. The two dealers shoot holes in the side of their RV before they pass out. Walter in his gas mask and underwear starts driving erratically down the road. He crashes uh, into a ditch and he starts making a video confession, then realizes the sirens are fire trucks going to put out the brush fire from the cigarette. End of the pilot. Uh, episode six, crazy handful of nothing. Things have happened in the intervening episodes. I'm not going to run through them all, but now Walter insists there will be no more bloodshed and he will only be involved in cooking the product and Jesse will be responsible for selling it. And that's it. We see a flash forward though, to a bald man who is walking through debris on a street and the camera reveals that this bald man is Walter White, who has shaved his head. We jump back to Walter White receiving cancer treatment. He asks uh, the cancer center not to cash his check until the following Monday, though. While cooking a batch of meth, Walter becomes very weak. Jesse says his aunt had cancer and he knows what's going on with Walter. Jesse also realizes that Walter is cooking meth to try to make enough money to financially support his family after he dies. Hank is investigating. Hank is, again, that brother-in-law who is a DEA agent, and he is investigating a new meth cook. And one piece of evidence that he has is a gas mask that came from a local high school. Hank shows up at Walter's classroom, and they do an inventory of lab equipment. Walter points out two missing gas masks and some missing glass equipment from the lab. Hank tells him uh, Walter to be more careful with the school's equipment. Jesse is trying to find new avenues of distributing their meth. He takes some to a dealer named Tuco, 
who is very impressed with the quality of the product. Jesse says uh, that Tuco can have this batch for $35,000. Tuco says he runs his operation on consignment. Uh, so Jesse will only get money after it, uh, the, the drugs have been sold. Jesse tries to take the meth back, but he gets beaten up by some goons from Tuco. Uh, and over a family game of poker, Hank tells Walter that they arrested Hugo, the custodian from Walter's high school, saying Hugo fit the profile they were looking for for a new meth dealer. Uh, Walt, uh, Walter pushes in all his chips uh, and Hank folds and Walter reveals that he had a handful of nothing. In the shower, Walter's hair begins to fall out from his cancer treatments. Uh, he finds out that Jesse uh, is in the hospital and he finds out that Tuco had his men beat Jesse up. In the morning, Walter shaves his head and takes a bag of meth to Tuco's hideout. Walter identifies himself as Heisenberg, the cook of the meth that Tuco was able to sell so easily. And as Heisenberg, he demands $50,000. Tuco refuses, and Walter grabs a pellet from his bag of meth, and he throws it, and it explodes and blows out all the windows and leaves debris across the road. Tuco gives Walter $50,000 and says that his meth that they stole um, from Jesse is the best that they've ever sold. Walter tells Tuco that he is his distributor now and Tuco will pay upfront for the product. And he also reveals that the meth in the bag is actually an explosive called fulminated mer mercury that he prepared in order uh, to do this setup. Uh, and so now Walter has his uh, distributor, Tuco, and uh, that is the end of the episode, A Handful of Nothing. And that's really just like, so in our pilot episode, we go from Walter White, uh, middle-aged father and kind of uh, worn out high school teacher to drug distributor um, in those six episodes. As we noted, this uh, entire series has 62 episodes. And just know there are many more transformations that are going to come. Uh, but it's a pretty quick, it's simultaneously a pretty quick jump, but also it feels very earned the leap like when you see where walter white is at the opening of the pilot to where he is with his head shaved presenting himself as heisenberg at the end of six episodes yeah so one of the things i really noticed about watching the first season in a, in a binge these last two days is that that angst you feel with walter and you know and the ups and downs of his early life cuz when we talk about breaking bad kind of in the past tense we're picturing this powerful heisenberg you know drug lord you know all the bad things he does but we we tend to forget i think some of the bumbling and the stress and the family tension that he's feeling early on so it was kind of cool to go back and really experience that again yeah i think um like breaking bad has the reputation and i think it's a valid one for like being the descent of a good man into um, villainy and, and in a way that tracks where you understand how you can end up with what is essentially like a, on some level, like a comic book supervillain, but like a real life version of a, of a supervillain that at the beginning of the series is anything but like he's a mild mannered, middle-aged married father, high school teacher. Uh, and, and how does that transformation happen in a way that actually will make logical sense. And I think that angst that you identified as one of the things that, that is like his driving motivation early on is, is definitely one of those. Now, I don't think that's his motivation through the whole series. I think it's where it begins is like this angst of securing uh, a future for his family where he knows his cancer treatments are going to wipe out his family uh, and he's not going to be there at the end of the cancer treatments. So what can he possibly do to try and ensure future stability for the family and that drives him into this. And, and then there's 
you know, um, in the layers of transformation that are going to happen, it's going to be pride and ego and greed are going to become motivations, not just that, um, that, that concern that is the initial motivation. Yeah. And I think this really does mirror what I, I assume a lot of people, but I know myself struggle with in their own lives is when you start to evaluate your motives, it gets really muddy really quickly because you might have pure motives, but then those motives can quickly turn prideful or selfish. And then it starts to really muddy the water of what is kind of a, a purely good action and what is not. And, and maybe that isn't necessarily helpful in itself, but that's clearly the case here. And I was impressed with how early on there's kind of these markers of like, they're, they're very clear about showing Walt. And, and I made some notes here. And so we see shame, like Walter's shame in a few different ways early on in this, uh, in the series. And one is, you know, the shame of him being a high school teacher when he's clearly a genius mm-hmm. And then having to wash a car of a student, you know, when he when he clearly what you know told his boss he's not going to do that, uh, and you know he's shamed by 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 Hank by being kind of the mild mannered you know brainiac, whereas Hank is the macho dude who's out there catching bad guys, and and we also see just his you know his his wife with Skyler is kind of mundane. And he's shamed in his finances in that they have to watch what credit card they use and these sorts of things. And so we start to see then signs of life as, you know, the cancer has actually, you know, it's it's the fear of death has brought him to life. Ultimately, the fear of death has made him act in ways that he wouldn't normally have acted. And it's fun to see that transformation even early on here. And if I can say one more thing before I uh, give it back to you, there's the 38th minute of the first episode in the pilot. There's that scene where there are these jerks in the clothing store making fun of his son. And, and there's, you know, they're saying just ignore him and, and such. And Walt goes out the back door, comes in the front and kicks the guy to the ground and then just challenges him and scares him off. And it's this moment of, it's really feels great because those guys really were being jerks. But it's also like the first time I think we see him just say, okay, I'm going to, I've had enough. And even though it's, the stakes are very small there, uh, that's a real indication of where things are headed. Yes. Uh, yeah, I completely agree with what you're saying. And I love what you said about motivations and how we can sometimes have a noble motivation that's the excuse for something else that's really driving us and and it's the same action like the same end result can happen um but we want to tell ourselves the better more noble version of why we're doing something and not say that it's because of laziness or 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 greed or selfishness (laughs) right or you know whatever it may be um but that it's something you know all the positive versions of those you know it's um something selfless is is what's going to make us do the things that we do and sometimes we're unwilling to drive deep into ourselves because we might uncover things that are a little, you know, discomforting <laughs> to, uh, to yeah. find out about why, why we are the way we are. Yeah, definitely. I think it's, it's something, and actually I'm more sympathetic toward Walt watching this again. And I've probably seen this first season uh, at least a handful of times. I don't know. Uh, 
but but because we always look at that later Walter White who's really already hardened, we miss some of this early nuance. And I think, you know, early on he really does care about his family. That's what pulls him into doing cancer treatment. Um, there's these scenes, I think, in early season two where he's kind of he sees his family doing things and he feels uh, drawn to them and he he does care for them. So I don't think it's purely selfishness, ultimately, although it does kind of trend that way. Um, and, and maybe that's partly just power corrupting. And the more power he gets, the more agency he gets, the more he cares about himself. Yeah, I, I think that's an interesting version of it. Um, famously, the pitch that um uh vince gilligan gave for the the series was that it was gonna be mr chips becomes scarface where mr chips was a a reference to the oh what is the title of it is it farewell mr chips uh but a beloved like a school teacher uh who's just like a paragon of everything you would want in terms of a leader that's gonna be molding young men and you know scarface being the ultimate drug dealer that that was the pitch was the transformation there um in reading through what Steppenwall and Zoller Seitz wrote about Breaking Bad. They said there's actually, uh, while the transformation to Scarface is definitely part of the series, he doesn't begin as Mr. Chips. Like he's kind of a worn out uh, high school teacher and he's not inspiring his (laughs) students and they're not inspiring him to be better versions of themselves. Right. (laughs) That's definitely true. Uh, so, So that initial starting point isn't actually quite as pure, but it is the kind of average humdrum everyday life becoming uh scarface i think is 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 an accurate one not necessarily like the the great inspirational figure uh version of it and in a lot of ways though i think that's um it's still incredibly interesting to see someone who would just be average in every you know way that you can imagine becoming this mythically evil figure um both in the series like the world of the series but then also now like breaking bad and walter white and and his alter ego of heisberg are are part of pop culture lore, you know, that are going to be there um, forever, I think. Yeah, I mean, this is a show that is going to kind of be one of those classic shows, you know, decades in the mm-hmm. future. And, and partly maybe for some of the reasons we discussed earlier, I mean, it really did catch the wave of early Netflix. And so it was groundbreaking in that way. But it did something... Uh, maybe it was, I don't know, it wasn't exactly the pinnacle, but it was kind of at least on its way to that like peak TV version of the anti-hero where like that became kind of commonplace that it's okay to have our hero be so flawed that he's not really a hero actually he's a villain. Right. And one thing I think that Breaking Bad does successfully for that genre is there are some of those um, shows that are situated in the idea of the anti-hero that really become a celebration of of uh you know the the trotting on the line and 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 transgressing the line and and destroying (laughs) all the moral norms uh breaking bad you know by its final season is showing this corrupts absolutely everything that walter white has ever touched like this destroys everything there is no like good at the other end of this journey um that the the moral ambiguity that uh, like he's willing to cross lines for a greater good early on, right. To secure financial aid for his family. But really by the end, like he is uh, just tarnished and mutilated and destroyed everything that he was trying to protect. Yeah, this is a great point because I, and I think as a viewer we're seduced that we we're we're along for the ride. You know, when he knocks the, the, the punk to the ground, as I just mentioned early on, I think most viewers are loving that. He's standing up for himself. He's got agency now. 
And, you know, a man who has been shamed and has been weak and held down now is standing up for himself. And I think we like to see that. But as time goes on, it gets worse and worse and worse. And eventually you see, okay, this this didn't work out real well. And I, I think, though, as a viewer, that we're seduced into kind of making him our hero until we realize this is not a hero we should have. Right. It's not, it's not someone to emulate. Um, and, and I think there are other shows in this kind of genre that sometimes make that mistake of, of like just not problematizing the actions of the protagonist and breaking bad is very willing to point out everything that is wrong in the choices that Walter White makes (laughs) and, and to pay, um, a just, um, you know, level of consequence for having made those choices. Yeah, I mean, it's a, the, 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 the series finale is interesting in that way because in a, in a, in a way he's at peace with what he's done. Mm-hmm. And, and maybe that's by accepting the, the evil in his nature, he then can come to peace with his whole arc. But I mean, and I also think in, in that last season, it is season five, you were right, it was split, I think, into two, that the, the guys that he ends up killing at the end are so bad that we we root for him again mm-hmm. that he's there's there is a form of redemption in that because he does save Jesse from death at the end and from imprisonment right. um one thing that uh again turning to that that TV the book uh with Steppenwall and uh Zoller sites I just want to read oh, a couple sentences cuz this is something I had not thought about with the series until I was uh skimming through this section uh in preparation for the podcast today and they say um as self regard uh let's see as breaking bad unfolds and what becomes increasingly bold brutal and self-regarding we start to wonder if what we're seeing is the story of a man transforming into a monster who might not otherwise have existed or that of a monster nestled for decades very deep inside of a man and waiting to be activated by the right combination of circumstances say a cancer diagnosis a new baby a financial crunch the opportunity to learn about the drug trade from hank and access to a former student who was already cooking crystal meth so uh they raise the question is Walter becoming a monster or was that monster always kind of simmering within him and we get to see the monster finally rear its head uh, in this. And I'm just wondering if you have a take on that. I mean, that's a great question. I think it is probably the monster escaping, but in the sense that all of us have a monster within us and all of us are both, I hate to put it this way, but both good and evil um, to you know, allude to Martin Luther, both sinner and saint, and so there is that that kind of battle within oneself um, where you know some actions are at least intended to be pure, and some are intended to be evil. And but there's always a little bit of both mixed in. And when we get too black and white, we create some problems because then mentally we can't wrap our mind around. You know, we want to put people into categories. Mm-hmm. I think, and I think. Funny enough, you know, the name of the company he leaves, Gray Matter, uh, things are very gray. They're both black and white. And maybe there's an illusion there in that, uh, you know, that connection, too, Um, because there is definite imagery in the show. And I think the more you watch it, the more you can see that. Yeah, I think it's one thing that the show does very successfully is those uh, visual reference points that um, are going to contain deeper meaning. And sometimes they draw so much attention to them, you can't avoid them. Other times, I think they're just there as something that's adding depth to a scene. And if you do happen to stop and consider it more, you, you realize 
the care that was taken in the set dressing, the care that was taken in the camera angles and, um, and, and how there can be added layers of depth that is, are, that are present beyond uh, the, the theme that you're getting from the narrative that's being presented right then. Yeah, definitely. And I think that's what good art does is it layers in various ways. So one is so that you can rewatch it or reread it or whatever the medium is. It isn't just a one off. And that's how you get a show that kind of stands the test of time because you have those layers. And it, I'm I'm very impressed um, from a filmmaking standpoint, just how they use different camera angles and uh, different things to convey meaning and image. From a narrative structure uh, point of view, I think the show also does some really interesting stuff with uh, flashbacks and flash forwards to um, create immense tension <laughs> where, um, yeah. so like the, the pilot I, I discussed, the opening is him driving crazily in his underwear with a gas mask on. And then you see, I, I didn't touch it, but like there's bodies in the back of the RV, there's bullet holes. And you're like, what in the world? And then it flashes back to this very mild-mannered man, uh, just in suburbia, high school teacher. Um, and you're like, how do you get from point A to point B? And within one hour, uh, they they show you uh, a way where like all those, uh, you know, every Chekhov's gun has been fired, <laughs> you know, by 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 the by the end of that. Um, but it's it's not uh, it, it's it's doing the 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 pretzel twisting of time uh, in order to do that. And I remember. There's a couple of seasons where they actually do that for like the entire season where like at the, the the opening shot of the season is something that's very evocative and it's going to linger with you. And then you're just waiting for that thing to happen. And it does not happen in that first episode. And then it doesn't happen in the second episode. And you're like, when is this yeah. thing going to happen? Um, and I, I think it takes a very yeah. um, confident storyteller to be willing to play with time in that way. I agree with that totally. I mean, in, and I did start the second season a little bit today and we see that arc where um you're you're seeing bits of the plane crash at the beginning of each episode and then at the end you find out that it is because you know it's jane i believe her father is you know a um airport traffic controller and he messed up and there's a plane crash because his daughter died and that death is due to walter white and and so it ties all these things together with this really vivid imagery, like the, the I think it's the teddy bear with its eyeball mm-hmm. popped out in That's the pool. floating in a pool. I still remember yeah. that, uh, yeah, even exactly. though I haven't rewatched it since you know <laughs> however many years ago it was. Um, I still remember that image, and and it it was striking, and it does like it just leaves you kind of every time you're reminded that it's out there, you're like, what in the world's going to happen to this teddy bear? And even though that's just a teddy bear, because of the nature of the series and everything that you're watching, you're just waiting for something awful to happen. And you're, you're just waiting and waiting and waiting. Uh, and I think a, a good touchstone for that sort of thing is lost, which would play with time and do this kind of thing as well, where you were kind of waiting and waiting, and waiting for the explanation of something that you've been given a glimpse of. And yes. um, so I, I, I think there's a number of shows in that early two thousands through the you know mid 2010s where that was um, a storytelling technique. They, they turned to, to um, create a lot of, drama and um this kind of anticipation for the viewer and i think when it's done well it's really good and breaking bad is an example lost as an example but in general and especially when i was younger i didn't like like seeing a movie or a show open with something that's happening later and then going back in time because i felt like then the the story arc was not open-ended mm-hmm 
you know, like I knew where they were going to go. And I, and I don't really, as a viewer, necessarily want to know where they're going to go. But when it's done well like this, it works so great. And I think that's why it's tempting to do it and why we can probably all think of examples where it's like, eh, it's not as satisfying. You know, it's, it's just kind of there. Um, it, but when it's done really well, it, it, the payoff is so satisfying. And, and I think one thing that this does that's, um, uh, or Breaking Bad does very well is that it, it makes the payoff super satisfying in terms of it. But also like there's so much mystery and it's not just the mystery, like the mystery of how someone got into an RV with some bullet holes that could just be a crazy, you know, a crazy night, <laughs> night out, <laughs> you know, what, whatever it was, like, like you could see that in like, um, the, oh, what, what the hangover movies, right. You know, something like yeah. that could have that same thing, but this uses the mystery to drive character development and character transformation in, in a way that I think is, um, ends up feeling like emotionally paid off and not just like narratively connecting the dots paying off at the end. Yeah. They, I mean, I think the mastery of what is going on um, or the mastery of the craft that Vince Gilligan is, is showing is, is amazing. And I, I still don't think I have a full grasp on it because it's so in, it's interwoven so well that it's hitting you on those emotional levels on the narrative level and visually and, and it just works. And this is, you know, it's it's not an old show by any means, but it's starting to, I mean, it's been 12 years since the pilot aired. So it's kind of in, we're on to the next generation almost of shows in some ways, mm-hmm. but it, it holds up really well. And I think the shorter seasons allow like incredible care and focus to be given. And also, um, like you were saying with the season two, like the, they know exactly how season is going to end. They're giving up. Um, and in the traditional seasons of a, of a series where there'd be like 22 to 25 episodes. Yeah. I mean, that's 22 to 25 before then, as you were noting, it could be even more, you know, into the thirties as they're trying to reach that hundred episode mark. Um, even if, uh, even when we're getting into the point of television storytelling, where there are going to be like beginnings and ends planned for every season, uh, there are definitely like standalone filler episodes and, and things that are just there to check off another one of those episodes that they were contracted to make or, or episodes that are there to save budget. So they do a bottle episode and things like that. And by having the, the much shorter season lengths, I think they're able to, to trim a lot of that and ensure that every episode is driving character revelation and, uh, and uh, including plot that is going to drive the action, but also keep the, the audience engaged in what is happening to these people as individuals. Cause they, they, they become such fully fleshed characters. Um, I, th- I think they begin pretty, pretty fully like Walter White. That's a, they know exactly who this character is in the, in the pilot. Um, and you, you can tell that uh, and you become invested in ex- everything that's circling around him and the choices that he's going to make because of that. Yeah. And I think that we, we see more of that in television now. I think it is partly the shorter episodes. I think it's partly, you know, it's it's not that easy to get a TV show made either. And so the more you have kind of up front, if you can show that arc, I think especially now it's easier to sell that show. Um, and so we see pilots that are much more fully formed than we might have, you know, 10 or 20 years ago. Actually, I guess 10 or 20 years before Breaking Bad. Uh, it's it's very impressive what's going on here from a character development standpoint. Um, we're kind of 
because of the summaries we we did, we're still in season one. I, we've definitely acknowledged that by season, uh, by series end, he is a full fledged like drug kingpin, and uh, like we're moving from thousands of dollars to millions of dollars that are that are at stake in decisions that are being made. Um, do you find, as someone who has consumed the entire series, uh, that all of that like tracks for you as a viewer, or do you feel like there's any like leaps where it, it kind of maybe goes a little too fast or anything like that? I mean, I'd have to think about the money because the money does, they, they're making money in, in the tens of millions, I think at one point. <laughs> wow. Um, I, I, so I couldn't remember I exactly how high it got, but that's a lot of money. <laughs> it's definitely in the multiple millions. And, and I was so like, I did, I did notice, you know, you had mentioned, uh, like in the drug bust initially, you know, he's or, or he sees on TV the seven hundred thousand, mm-hmm. and then he does this calculation with Jesse. I think maybe it's a few episodes later where he goes, "How much money do I need?" You know, for my family, it's like seven hundred thirty-seven thousand, and I, I just wondered if there was a touch point there with that initial amount of money, because later on, you know, there's this scene where Jesse asks him, "You know, are we in the meth business or are we in the the money making business?" And he says, I'm in the empire business. Uh, right. Do you remember that? I, I, do, I, I think is that the, there's another, I mean, there's so many things that, that it is amazing to me that a show that I only watched that one time, uh, like I remember some lines of dialogue perfectly, like the, I am the one who knocks monologue or yeah. the, there's gold lying in the streets. Is is that the Empire Business one? Is that the same moment or is that a different moment? Like he definitely gets greedy at various points. <laughs> What's interesting is it might be the same moment and we latched onto different right. portions of it. But but the the point there is that he he's has moved on from I need enough money for my family to I'm going to make myself uh, a historical figure that everyone will remember. Mm-hmm. That I'm going to create my own empire and people will not forget who I am. And I think that's part of what his shift is is the shift is to being remembered to doing something in this world that his death will live beyond his death and i think that really resonates with the human spirit and and you know the the want to be you know to leave something behind other than you know just a, a life lived um we haven't had a chance to dig into very many of the side characters, but I, maybe we could just talk quickly about how Walter's relationship is with some of the um, other characters in the show. I think for me, the what what always resonated is like the purest relationship was between Walt and Walt Jr. Um, like for me, like there was never any ulterior motive that that's going around. And even with his wife, Skylar and, and uh, certainly with his brother-in-law and, and sister-in-law like, and, and all the drug dealers, like there, there's always like these layers um, that are present, but there's something for me, like it's just a pure father and son love that exists between Walt and Walt jr. Um, until Walt jr. Finds out everything that his dad's been up to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's this interesting back and forth. So like where he has that period where he wants to be called Flynn, Mm-hmm. And he kind of disassociates from his dad, um, but yeah, I mean, it's. I think anyone who has kids doesn't want their kids to see them or see the worst parts of them. And so, in some way, that's that's Walt's biggest fear. I think is to to have his son know who he really is. Um, yeah, even is more than Skyler. Well, Skyler, I mean, like it's funny he hides it from Skyler, but once she finds out, she actually kind of gets in on it. Um, yeah, I mean, at first it's kind of against my will, but then there's the same kind of draw. Like how much money are we talking about right now? 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, and that, that could also be seen, I think, as this this corruption, uh, this this the the power and money corrupt people, uh, even people who are have pure intentions. And the interesting thing, so uh, you know, people hate the Skylar character. Like fans hated that. Oh, character. I have no idea because I haven't really engaged with the fan community at all. Yeah, so they really did not like her character, and yet she was the one who was being wronged ultimately. And I think part of it was, though, when she does kind of find out and react, she ends up cheating on him. And that's something he never does. So in all his corruption, he doesn't go after other women. And the one, well, the one time he does, he fails miserably and it's kind of comedic. And so it, I think that was part that marital relationship uh, is really important to this show because I think he does love his wife uh, despite the, the distance. Um, and there's that struggle. So, I mean, I think to get back to his son and Skylar, there's this love of family that is at the core of who he is, even though he does get really corrupted later. And as we're saying, like the, when we're saying that there can be both, or, or maybe it's not all the noble motivation of selflessness and I'm trying to establish something for my family, it becomes the power mad, uh, you know, desire for a legacy and all these other things. Those can still exist simultaneously. Uh, you know, it, it, one does not completely negate the other. Yeah, and, and I think that's part of the reason the show works so well is because it is layered and intertwined and it doesn't just say, okay, good or bad. It makes us think about those relationships and feel those emotions um, and so I think, you know, Walt's journey is, is part in, in part getting respect from his family also. Well, are there any other characters that you want to make sure we at least acknowledge before we have to wrap up this discussion? Okay. Yeah. Let's, <laughs> well, we should talk about <laughs> Hank, I think briefly, because he is the, the kind of the, the anti Walt or the opposite. Um, and, and when they, when he finds out that Walt is the man he's been chasing all these years, you know, there's a, it, it's explosive, and that's such a key moment in the series. Uh, Hank's wife Marie is is such an odd character because she is, you know, she's a shoplifter. She's kind of has her own demons, and yet she clearly loves Hank, and th- their relationship is is kind of paralleling the Skyler Walt relationship in, in a different way. Um, later in the show, we have, you know, a lot of, you know, key characters like Gus Fring and, uh, Mike Ehrmantraut and, uh, et cetera. And, and those are very complex characters in their own right. And so we really don't have time for that probably today, but I think there's such depth to the characters in the series. We really, we really can't do justice in the, like in the short time we have. Mm-hmm. I think it's one thing that the series largely does well. I am wondering, like you've mentioned that the fan reaction to Skylar wasn't great. And um, the, I, I, you kind of said the um, Skylar sister's character, she's kind of an odd character with her, uh, you know, she's kleptomaniac and, and there's all these odd quirks. Do you feel like the show successfully writes female characters or is that maybe a, a point of uh, weakness for the series? Oh, that's a really good question. I think there is some weakness. I, I think Skylar's character is kind of deceptively complex mm-hmm. um, because of the way she reacts to what's going on. And she has to feel, you know, she's, she's feeling the angst of uh, a spouse who has found out her husband has cancer and, and he hid it from her and then he's behaving very erratically. And, and she, she plays some complexity there. I do think there is um, some lack of depth in the female characters and there aren't, 
and I, I guess I was alluding to it before, but you know, normally uh, female characters are played very like sexuality is is a large part of the character. Um, we don't see that in this show as much. We with Skylar, we do some, but um, you know, women are not used as eye candy, you know, or or, or some kind of a prop. There is mm-hmm. complexity in those female characters. It's just not they're not uh, they're still kind of. Uh, I don't know what the word I'm looking for here is, but you know, the, uh, the supporting characters to the, to the overall show. Yeah. And I, I don't feel like every show, you know, has to have an equal number of male to female characters or anything like that. Um, like I, I don't get, I'm not too concerned when a world war two movie is mostly men. Like that's just the nature of that story. That's <laughs> well, yeah. I think the nature of the drug trade in, Albuquerque that they're telling uh, you know, most of the drug dealers he's going to counter are going to be men, but so much of this is centered around his personal life. And uh, so there, I think there was opportunity there. Maybe it wasn't fully realized uh, in in some of those relationships that, that existed before he really entered that other world that he's going to cross into. Yeah, I I think that's fair. And, And I think I, but I do, I do kind of applaud them for not, making the the women in the show you know like i said eye candy or kind of just, just the pop. male gaze experience <laughs> yeah exactly. when it is so so when it is such a male-centered show i think that definitely i mean i think there is some with jesse pinkman where that does happen but not 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 in all of his relationships <laughs> but with some of them that that's that's a fair point <laughs> but but there's less of that than you'd see and i think actually that makes the show stronger also because it doesn't become a distraction the way that uh male female relationships romantic relationships are dealt with is in a more, I think, realistic way or a more mm-hmm. gritty way um, that kind of gets be- be- to the emotions versus just the the sexuality. Yeah, like um, you mentioned season two, the the story arc with Jesse and I, I can't remember the, the girlfriend's name, which is Jane. not really supportive. Is it Jane? Um, like I remember how like star-crossed that whole, that, that all felt. And like you were just, you wanted it to work out, but you kind of felt the whole time this isn't going to work out. Um, and I think she was a pretty well-developed character. Yeah. And um, actually I thought that was, and that's actually a key relationship for the whole show. I mean, mm-hmm. I think that is um, because that was Jesse's chance at happiness yeah. uh, in some ways. Yeah. It's, it's Jane. Jane. Uh, just want okay. to confirm that, but yeah. And I, I thought they did a great job with that. And the fact that that's another you know moment where Walt steps over another line and allows her to choke on her own vomit. Um, you know, there's these just very kind of violent, nasty things he does. And that's a passive, you know, that's passive, but he, he allows her death. Then later we see more active killing. Mm -hmm. And, and the impact on Jesse is just tremendous too, that it's not just, I feel like, uh, sometimes those, uh, kind of traumas serve for, uh, a storyline. I think this becomes definitive for Jesse, um, and, as the character continues to develop. Yeah. The scene that comes to mind for me is when he is, I believe he's calling her voicemail and it shows him doing that after she's died just to listen to her voice. Mm -hmm. And we see that. And then eventually the number goes out of commission, I think. And, and that's just kind of this very sad yet sweet moment that he, he still cares for her and he wants to hear her voice despite the fact that she no longer is alive. Mm-hmm. Well, George, thank you for jumping onto this episode and thank you for working through some tech 
issues that we had behind the scenes. Hopefully uh, <laughs> listeners won't even know because Andrew's able to work his magic uh, on this recording. But I do yeah. appreciate you uh, taking the time and then the extra time uh, to be with us for this discussion. Do you have any final thoughts on Breaking Bad or the character of Walter White? I just think that I think it's it's such a strong character that it, it has become in some ways a caricature of itself that we say, you know, it's kind of like, well, the chemistry teacher that became this, you know, strong drug kingpin. And I really in watching now, I really do want to emphasize that emotional transformation and that moral struggle is so apparent that I think even with as much acclaim as it's gotten, I think that needs to be at the center of what we're, we're doing when we look at the show. So just another plug for that. Yeah, I think um, I mentioned that Vince Gilligan's initial pitch was the Mr. Chips become Scarface. So using like two iconic characters to make an elevator pitch. Walter White is definitely one of those characters that now gets used in elevator pitch pitches to explain <laughs> what a show is going to be. Um, Vince Gilligan successfully like entered that pantheon as a creator of introducing a character that's going to resonate in pop culture. So significantly used as shorthand for a type of character for the downfall or the moral degradation of a character. I think Walter White's going to be that stand in for that. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, it's, it's going to be kind of this timeless character and it's done so much for Brian Cranston and given him the opportunity to show his acting chops beyond what, you know, he already had a very successful career before he set foot on this set. And now it, it took him to another, you know, pantheon. All right. That is going to wrap up this episode, though. I wouldn't be surprised if we circle back to Breaking Bad at some point in the future and talk about another one of these characters, because it's that significant of a piece of pop culture creation. Thank you for joining us, listeners. For show notes and links to all the other great Dueling Genre shows, you can go to DuelingGenre.com. Also, please subscribe to the Protagonist Podcast in your podcast app of choice, and please leave us a review. That really helps us out. We'd like to thank Nick English, who designed our logo, and Scott Tofty, who composed our theme music. If you enjoyed this episode, you might want to go check out episode number 88, when we talked about The Joker in The Dark Knight, or episode number 269, when we talked about the TV uh, show Suits with uh, George Zacharidis as a guest on that episode. George, is there anything you would like to plug before we wrap up? Uh, just uh, you can you can listen to my podcast uh, with my partner Randy Woodbury, the Cheers Weekly podcast. We're on iTunes and all you know the platforms you can find us. And of course, Theology and Breaking Bad is coming out in the future. And if you want to propose, uh, please check out popularcultureandtheology.com. We'll have the call for papers there. All right, thank you again for listening, and we'll be back next week to discuss another great character in a great story. So long. All right. Well, before yeah, we move I mean, on to the summary of these episodes that, of Breaking that, like, Bad, the, this... oh, I think we've got a lag happening, George. <laughs>